once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody and also those listening on, listening on our podcast channel. A quick recap. Uh, from two weeks ago, actually, where we had a teaching on Exodus 35, we learned about the incident with the golden calf, and we saw how God worked uh, through Moses and how he laid out his plan for his people. So tonight, we're going to go into Exodus chapter 36. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that. If you have your phone, that's fine. Your iPad, that's how I do it mostly now. Um, now, tonight we're going to do things a little differently. Normally when we do this, I go through verse by verse through the entire chapter because uh, there's a lot to unpack. I'm not going to do that tonight because the majority of chapter 36, if you want to read it a little later, it simply describes the building of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle. And it gets very specific. There's not a lot to pull from that. However, there are several verses at the very beginning that are very special that we're going to read, and that's what we're going to go into. So chapter 36, let's start out with verses 1 and 2, and this is what it says. So Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. So then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. So our chapter starts out by telling us God had given the people abilities, abilities to do the work, to actually construct, to put together. They couldn't go to Home Depot like we can do now, Amazon, all that kind of stuff. They actually had to make this themselves. And it gives us two names, two people, Bezalel and Aholiab. And according to Jewish tradition, Bezalel was the head builder. He was like the guy, like the one. And the other one, Aholiab, was like his number two, his second in command. Really good, but Bezalel was the top guy. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The text tells us that, first off, God gave certain people the skill and ability to do the work, right? That's what he did, which means God gave them a purpose. He gave them a gift, a talent, with the intent of them doing something with it later on. And here's what's interesting. When it came time to do that, to use that skill, they weren't allowed to just go make whatever tabernacle they thought was cool, right? I'm going to put a nice deck over here. Here's where the hot tub's going, none of that. He had a very specific tabernacle in mind. They were to make it according to his specifications. So God gave them a gift to be used according to his purposes. Verse 2 tells us uh, that Moses then summoned these two, Bezalel and Aholiab, and all the other skilled workers who were willing to come and do the work. Who were willing? Those are the key words, right? We can't tell for a fact from the text, but it would appear that God had called, and not everybody answered that call who was given the talent. Maybe they weren't willing to pull themselves from their other labors or take part in the, in the sanctuary. Maybe they just felt they had better things to do. Again, it's not for sure, but the text does appear to suggest not everybody answered that call when they were, uh, when they were actually called. Now, they had a talent, they had a gift, but they kept it for themselves. Now, this is going to be important in a little bit. We're going to talk more about some stuff that Jesus taught, right? So again, you had people who had the, who were called, didn't necessarily answer that. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. When the skilled laborers stepped forward, when they started to do the actual work, putting things together, building everything, what happens with everybody else? The people who weren't that skilled. Like, my dad's actually a pretty good carpenter. He can make some cool stuff. I can just put holes in stuff, right? I can make nails and stuff, and they're kind of, all, you know, it's more like a weapon than it is some fine piece of furniture. I don't have that skill. So what happens with people like me who don't particularly have that skill? Did they just sit back and watch? Were they left out of the process? 
what happens? Well, let's read verse 3, and it tells us. They received from Moses... And all the offer, they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelite had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring... All right, once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody and also those listening on, listening on our podcast channel. A quick recap. Uh, from two weeks ago, actually, where we had a teaching on Exodus 35, we learned about the incident with the golden calf, and we saw how God worked uh, through Moses and how he laid out his plan for his people. So tonight, we're going to go into Exodus chapter 36. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that. If you have your phone, that's fine. Your iPad, that's how I do it mostly now. Um, now, tonight we're going to do things a little differently. Normally, when we do this, I go through verse by verse through the entire chapter, because uh, there's a lot to unpack. I'm not going to do that tonight, because the majority of chapter 36, if you want to read it a little later, it simply describes the building of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle. And it gets very specific. There's not a lot to pull from that. However, there are several verses at the very beginning that are very special that we're going to read. And that's what we're going to go into. So chapter 36, let's start out with verses 1 and 2. And this is what it says. So Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. So then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. So our chapter starts out by telling us God had given the people abilities. Abilities to do the work, to actually construct, to put together. They couldn't go to Home Depot like we can do now, Amazon, all that kind of stuff. They actually had to make this themselves. And he gives us two names, two people, Bezalel and Aholiab. And according to Jewish t- tradition, Bezalel was the head builder. He was like the guy, like the one. And the other one, Aholiab, was like his number two, his second in command. Really good, but Bezalel was the top guy. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The text tells us that, first off, God gave certain people the skill and ability to do the work, right? That's what he did, which means God gave them a purpose. He gave them a gift, a talent, with the intent of them doing something with it later on. And here's what's interesting. When it came time to do that, to use that skill, they weren't allowed to just go make whatever tabernacle they thought was cool, right? I'm going to put a nice deck over here. Here's where the hot tub's going, none of that. He had a very specific tabernacle in mind. They were to make it according to his specifications. So God gave them a gift to be used according to his purposes. Verse 2 tells us uh, that Moses then summoned these two, Bezalel and Aholiab, and all the other skilled workers who were willing to come and do the work. Who were willing? Those are the key words, right? We can't tell for a fact from the text, but it would appear that God had called, and not everybody answered that call who was given the talent. Maybe they weren't willing to pull themselves from their other labors or take part in the, in the sanctuary. Maybe they just felt they had better things to do. Again, it's not for sure, but the text does appear to suggest not everybody answered that call when they were, uh, when they were actually called. Now, they had a talent, they had a gift, but they kept it for themselves. Now, this is going to be important in a little bit. We're going to talk more about some stuff that Jesus taught. Right? So again, you had people who, had the, who were called didn't necessarily answer that. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. When the skilled laborers stepped forward, when they started to do the actual work, putting things together, building everything, what happens with everybody else? The people who weren't that skilled. Like my dad's actually a pretty good carpenter. He can make some cool stuff. I can just 
put holes in stuff, right? I can make nails and stuff, and they're kind of, well, you know, it's more like a weapon than it is some fine piece of furniture. I don't have that skill. So what happens with people like me who don't particularly have that skill? Did they just sit back and watch? Were they left out of the process? What happens? Well, let's read verse 3, and it tells us. They received from Moses... And all the offer, they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelite had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So the people who did not have the specific skills to build, they blessed the work of the temple in other ways, in ways that they had, things that they could actually do. So God gave them the opportunity, and they stepped forward. And morning after morning, they brought more and more stuff. And in this case, they would have brought gold, precious metals, uh, maybe wood, thread used for making the, uh, uh, the curtains, all stuff. Each person gave according to how they were blessed. And this was a community-wide project. Everybody did it. And the people were so focused on giving, they were so bought in, very soon something else happens. It's really cool. Verses 4 to 7, let's read this. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing. They left. They stopped what they were doing, and they said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. And this is serious. Let me read this. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they, had already, uh, what they already had was more than enough to do the work. So the outpouring of support was so much, Moses actually had to go back to the people and say, okay, listen, fabulous, stop. They used the word restrained, restrained from giving. He's like, listen, we're good. That's fabulous, thank you, but I need you all to stop. Go back home, this is fantastic, but that's it, right? And I think this is, this is important to note because a lot of times when we study the Old Testament, I think the Israelites sometimes get a bad rap right? Because they, they did do some bad stuff. I mean, we just learned about how they made the golden calf. You know, they broke his laws regularly. They worshiped other gods. They had some difficult times. They were imperfect. They're people just like us. But they did some things very, very well. And this is one of those cases, right? Where they all came together. They all pitched in. They gave and they gave. And they actually had more than they needed to build this uh, uh, tabernacle, right? They had to be instructed to stop Giving. Now, I can go on record here. I have never heard of a church in the United States where the pastor came out and said, listen, stop. stop. Take those offering plates, and I want you to throw them in the garbage. Break them. Right? And this is not a comparison. I'm just saying, I want you to put in mind what they were doing and how much was going on, how behind they were. Right? Now, also, this says something about Moses and his leadership. Moses was not interested in amassing a large amount of wealth for this tabernacle. He was not a prosperity preacher in any form, right? He asked for a free will offering to actually do the work, and once they had enough, he said, stop. That is good, right? So it shows he had great integrity. Now, at this point, I do want to switch gears, and we're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to talk about the New Testament and what it tells us about giving, because that's very much related to what was happening here in the book of Exodus. Now, there's certainly a lesson to be learned from the Israelites in this story, but since Jesus is the best teacher on this subject, right, I always like to go over what he talked about, right? 
So now, if you want to read the rest of chapter 36, you can. Do it in your own time. Again, they just go more into the actual physical building of the tabernacle. Now, what's interesting is when I talk to some people, and they ask me about the book of Numbers, and there are some books of the Bible, Numbers is one of them, there's a couple chapters where there's just list after list after list after list. And I'll be honest with you, there's no pastors that can get up and talk about that for 45 minutes. The rest of this chapter is kind of like that, right? But let's look at Jesus because this is what he, what he so, does such a good job is he tells us what we should do and what we shouldn't do, right? He saw firsthand how us humans had messed up even giving offerings, right? He did. He saw this. He saw people turned it into stuff that it shouldn't be. So he actually comes out and he says, when you give, do this. Or don't do it like this at all, right? So let's look at this now because it really highlights the reason people did this well, right? And then we can really appreciate the Israelites and what they did. So first off, whenever we talk about giving, it should never be forced, never coerced, right? And we should never be about bringing attention to ourselves. It should only be done for the right reason. So let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verses 2 to 4. He gets very specific. He says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you do give to the needy, do not let your right hand, excuse me, your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So in this case, let's really look at this. There was probably a lot of giving going on. What he saw Hey, the coffers were full. People were really doing a good job. The problem was they actually had people with trumpets announcing who was giving what and how big it was. It was, a, it, it was all about them, right? These people would take very, very specific steps to make sure, wait, 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 wait. I'm giving mine now. Now you can do it, right? They wanted the attention to be on them. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, there we go. Wait, you guys missed it. Let's do it again. Right? And so then everybody's like, oh, did you see how much he gave? That's amazing. Right? The problem was, where is all that attention directed? And me. That's what it's about. These people wanted to make themselves look good. They wanted a name for themselves. It had nothing to do with God making him known or being given to further his purpose on earth. Right? And that's a key distinction. It was about people making themselves known. They took the model that God had gave where he is at the top and they reversed it. So, he, I mean, if he gets a little credit, that's great. Where do we need it? Here with all the attention, the lights, the horns for me, right? That's, that's what they were doing. They were buying their fame. But now look, this is great. Look, look what Jesus said, how they should give. He said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you give, do it in secret. It, in secret, Right? The purpose of the statement has nothing to do with the amount of money given, with what he just said. It never even comes up. He's just driving home the point, take yourselves out of it. Do it so much, one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. He actually goes so far as to be specific and tells you to hide it, conceal it. The Messiah of the world actually told us to conceal something, to hide it. See, that blows my mind. We really must have been messing stuff up for him to say, no, hide it. Keep it secret. 
right? But that's, that's also, that's not the only time he told people to hide something, to keep it secret. There's times where he did a miracle, totally healed somebody. And then he told them what? Nothing. Nothing. Tell no one. Why, why would he do that? Was he ashamed? Did he did not want people to know? No. Jesus, just like with giving offering, the reason you give, the reason he healed is more important, the amount. It had to do with why. Why was he doing that? He wanted to keep the main thing, the main thing, which was direct people to God. I want to take a moment and let's read from uh, Mark chapter 1. Mark 1 verses 43 to 45. We're going to see an example where Jesus heals somebody and he tells them not to say anything. But here's what I want you to be on the lookout for. When we read this, look for the why. Like, try to figure out what's going on. Why would he want this to keep, be kept secret? Let's look at that now. Mark chapter 1, 43 to 45. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. This is the man that he just healed. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. What did the man do? Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Now, talk freely, the actual, another way to describe it in the Greek word, it's actually a heralding, right? When you go out Christmas caroling and you're blah, 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 you're real. he was heralding what Jesus just did for him. So he wasn't just talking freely like, hey, guess what? How's your day? He was putting it out there, right? That's what it means. He was spreading the news. And as a result, what happens? Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside where? Lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, when Jesus tells us, again, the man uh, to tell, when he says to tell no one, the Greek word here is actually medin. Medin does not mean, hey, just keep it on the down low, right? Just, the word medin in ancient Greek actually means forbidden. He said, you are forbidden from telling anyone, right? That's huge. That is solid. That's, again, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, saying, you are forbidden from telling people that I just cured you, right? That's enormous, right? That's not a suggestion. He's not like, hey, think about it. He was dead serious. Why would he do this? Verse 45 tells us why. When the man went and told everyone, says Jesus could no longer enter the towns. He had to stay away outside the lonely places. Why? Because people were flocking to him for the wrong reason. It wasn't like people weren't seeking him. They were. They totally were. But once they heard about this miracle, they had no interest in why he could do the miracle, who he was. They didn't care that he was the Messiah. They weren't looking to get closer to God. Once people got it in their head that he could do this, he was like a rich uncle. <gasps> you want to come? Come on, come on. And it was impossible for him to change their minds. It was so much so, this is no joke, this man who was cured, he was actually cured of leprosy, made it worse for Jesus. Think about that. In the history of all the people Jesus encountered, he healed a man of leprosy, and that dude made his job harder. It was worse for Jesus. He may have even, think about it, prevented some people from being saved because they got the wrong idea in their head. And I've met people, if people, if they're not taught right, I know people that have, there's one lady, I think I've told this story before, she was in my office, uh, she was just visiting from, she was from down south, and she wasn't telling it to me, but I overheard it, whenever people talking about, you know, 
Bible and stuff. And I heard her say, yeah, me and my daughter got baptized and my uncle still got sick. I'm like, what? <laughs> Who, what? Well, hold on a second. But we have this idea, if I do this, or G Jesus is the rich, he's going to solve everything. That is not Christianity. That's not what it's about. Jesus, it got so bad, he could no longer go in the towns. These people had no interest in, his, in the Messiah. So, here, so this, is the, this is the truth of it. He decided it was better to go hang out in the desolate places and avoid these people than it was to be in their presence. How, how tragic is that when you really think about that? That's what was going on. The people weren't interested in why. Why was he able to heal? How could he do this? What was his purpose? Well, we know Jesus was Messiah. He wanted to bring people back to God. And you are either aligned with that purpose, or in this case, you are against it. That's what this is about. Now, there's one more story regarding giving that I want to share, and it's important because it rounds out the proper way to give, you know, whatever you do. And this, this comes from the book of Mark, chapter 12, Mark 12, uh, 41 to 44. And this is, again, really interesting, and you've probably heard it before. Mark 12, 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched. He watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. It's important. They had no shortage of money. I mean, they were like, woo, right? Coffers were full. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents, less than a nickel, less than... Anybody here ever put in two pennies? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm just saying. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right? This is what she did. And he called his disciples to him. Jesus said, truly I tell you, this woman has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So there's some really, really important stuff going on here, and it has very little to do with the actual amounts given to a degree. First, we see Jesus. This is what's interesting. Jesus purposely sat down in a place where he could watch the offering box. Like that bad boy we have in the hallway you guys walk past? Be like, if I just put a chair and I was like this. I saw you. Definitely saw you. Nice job. But how would that look? That's what he did. He watched with a specific purpose of seeing who did what. Jesus Christ did this. Right? And now I looked. I did some research. And I tried to find a, a good picture of an idea of what this box would look like. And it was actually a wooden box. And it had a funnel at the top. And here's a picture of what it may have looked like right here. And there were several of them throughout the sanctuary, and people just came and put their money in. Again, I want to like to get you a full picture of Jesus is sitting down. He purposely was like, yeah, right here, right here, right here. And he watched, right? He watched. And as you remember, rich people were putting in large amounts of money. They had no shortage of cash. That was not the idea. And that's, in a way, that can be good for church, but in the wrong way, that can be really bad, really bad, right? So Jesus is watching people put in large amounts of money, and then this, this poor woman works her way through, right up there, and she drops in two copper coins, right? A couple of, let's just say two, she drops in two pennies. 
And this, this is where Jesus calls the disciples. Guys, guys. Look at this. Now, if you were the disciples, what would you think? She didn't give enough. He saw it. I would have waited till she he was gone, and then, you know. What you don't know what he's gonna say, right? So he says, No, guys, I, I, I want you to look at this. Look at what just happened. Jesus tells them she put in more than anybody else. Now, when I, we talk about that story, most people today go, oh, that's nice. That's a nice story, right? It's bigger than that. It's huge. It's actually kind of uncomfortable when you really get down to it. She gave everything she had. She was already, let me just say this, dirt poor. And I don't mean that negatively. I mean literally. That's what she, she had. Not, she had two pennies. And she put them in the offering plate, which means I have two cents. I don't know what you can buy with two cents back then, but that's what she had. When she went to church, she had two cents. When she left, how much did she have? Was she going to eat dinner that night? Was she going to eat dinner the next morning? Was she going to eat dinner the night after that? After that? After that? Because when you only have two cents left, you may not be having a lot of money coming in the next day, right? Or the day after that. She had nothing. She was bankrupt. No way to purchase more food. She gave away her safety net. Now, let's be honest, two cents is not much of a safety net or a parachute, but she didn't even have that. She was going to go hungry that night. And this isn't, this isn't like a Disney movie where you know it's always going to end well. It's, it's fine. Don't worry. A little stressor. It looks weird. It'll be fine at the end. We don't know what happened to her. We don't know what happened to her. Anyone ever been to a third world country where there's no social services? When you're hungry, what happens? You don't eat. You starve. We don't know. This, again, this isn't a Disney movie. I'm not here to tell you, oh, she's fine. Her rich uncle came and took him everything. She gave and had nothing left. That's the point. And this, this is why Jesus praised her. And it really, again, has nothing to do with the size of what she gave. It has everything to do with why the Israelites gave the way they did in the book of Exodus we read. This woman gave out of her faith in what God was doing. That's what an offering is. Number one, an offering, it's a gift that recognizes that you are blessed. And let's be honest, two pennies doesn't feel like a lot of blessing, right? But for her, it did. And then second, you give that gift back to God with the intention of making sure other people feel blessed too, that they can know God. I'm blessed. I want other people to be blessed because of God. That's what she did intentionally and on purpose, right? Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 16, because this, this describes this in biblical terms, and we're going to talk about it. Romans 6, 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have, brought, who, those who have been brought, what, from death to life, 
and, as, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So what, what this means is that we, everything around us, you, me, every, everything I have influence over should be instruments of righteousness. Everything we do within our control, should, we should use to further God's kingdom in some way, in some format. Everything we do, including our offerings, should point to God and then help others see him as well. And why do we do this? Because we ourselves have been brought from death to life. Because we have been blessed. Because we have been saved. And then we give with the intention, the hope, the desire that other people will have that too. That's the nature of it. Right? So when you really start to think about that and take that into consideration, you see why her, her gift was so powerful, was so meaningful. Right? She gave two pennies so other people can be blessed. That's what she wanted. She gave them with the hope that other people wouldn't come to know God. So, another way to think of this, it doesn't matter what the money, how much it is and what it matters to us. It matters, it's what it is to her. That's what counts. To give your last two pennies for real means one and only one thing, that you completely trust in God. I mean, that's what that means. And you're willing to put yourself at risk so other people could know him. Is that not a powerful gift? That's what this is. That is profound. And see, and then when you put that in stark contrast to the rich people who were giving tons and tons, but it was all about them. They had horns and lights. And woo, look at that. Wow. And Jesus said, here's what's key. He said they gave out of their wealth, which means they gave from their disposable wealth. They gave from money that didn't matter to them. It wasn't going to affect them. So while they gave an amount that seemed like a lot, you're like, wow. It's actually a reflection of how much they don't care. That's what they did. They gave to draw attention to themselves, where this woman gave everything to draw attention to God. So it, what they did was wrong on every level. It's damaging. Here's the other side. It's not only damaging to them because it's a reflection of their heart. It's damaging to the rest of the church. Because let's be honest, lights, sirens, horns, like people are like, wow, it's, that's got to be the way, that's the way you're supposed to give. <gasps> it was drawing other people to do the same. Now, another important thing we need to consider before, before we ever give any offering is forgiveness. We need to resolve any issues between us and others. So it's not just that your gift needs to be in line with God's purpose, but our hearts, our lives need to be in line as well. And this is beautiful. This is what, how Jesus describes it. It's in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, if, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So this verse, it's amazing, and it's just one of those verses that really increases my faith in Jesus. It really helps me. Because Jesus, Christianity is one of those, it's the religion, it's the right one for so many reasons, but also because Jesus was about nothing more than 100% getting us in line and doing the right thing. If, like if, if man had wrote that, it wouldn't be, you know, be like, well, keep a little to yourself, you know. You know, if, 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 seriously, and like within Islam, there is a teaching that if you feel threatened, you can lash out. 
There, it, it is in there. It's in the Quran. That's where the, the for 9-11, they thought they were doing the right thing. That's what they were taught. What did Jesus just say? Jesus said the exact opposite. I don't want your gift. If you have something between you and your brother, if you remember you have something, stop. Go make it right. And he didn't say if they're Christian, did he? He didn't say if they believe the same thing, if they're nice to you, if they're cool, if they're a neighbor. I don't know if there's something, you need to fix it. And he says, here's the other thing, it doesn't even have to be anything big. In fact, I believe personally he's implying small stuff. If it's something big, you would have known about it, it'd be in your head the whole time. Even driving here, you'd be like, oh, you know, when I was younger, me and my brother used to, oh, Erica, I can't believe that guy. Right? Or vice versa, he'd say that about me. But he's talking about, no, you're going your day life, and you come up, you come all the way up here, and you get to the offering box, and you're like, oh, yeah, that thing, that thing. So what does Jesus say? Stop. He doesn't say, put it back in your pocket, put your checkbook, put, take your check, put it back. What does he say? Leave it. Don't even take another step. Just set it down. Go fix it. It'll be fine. Whenever that's all fixed, then come back and give your gift. See, that is amazing. That is profound. Fixing of the relationship is more important than giving a gift. Why? Because he wants us, to, he wants our lives to reflect his life. That we truly are here for the right reason. And what's cool is all these teachings that Jesus gave, it aligns with what the Israelites did when we first read this. Right? Because we're blessed, because we have a right relationship with God, our giving should be done with a grateful heart so other people would have that too. And if, our, and if we're not there yet, if we have issues, which we do, and let's be honest, from time to time throughout our lives, who doesn't have issues to some degree, right? God's saying is go fix that. Make it right. Then come back. Because it's always more important to forgive and have a right relationship. Right? That's what matters most. And with the Israelites, the way they give, we give according to God's plan because we want his plan to continue. Now, along those same lines, I get asked this question. It comes up. How much should you give, right? Is it 10%? Right? And that's a reasonable question. But that number is also based on the Old Testament uh, temple tax that the Israelites were required to give. So the question is, what do we do now? Because I've had people ask, well, I'm not a Jew. I'm not Israel. What am I supposed to do? What do we do? All right? Well, Paul actually addresses this question for us. He did a wonderful job. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 and 7. 2 Corinthians 9, he says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, which means like you feel like you have to. For God does what? He loves a cheerful giver. So now here's the, here's the funny, there's the other side of my brain. That sounds great, but there's still not a number in there. There's no percentage, Right? That's the other side. So what do we do? Well, the reason, let's get into that. The reason Paul doesn't list a specific number is that being a Christ follower is vastly different from anything else in the world. There is nothing like Christianity. Like, and here's what I mean. If you look closely at the teachings of Jesus Christ, right, did he ever give a minimum passing score? Like, do you need a C minus or will a D plus get me to heaven? How do you know, right? Like, 
how low can the bar be and I still get through? Because that's kind of what you're asking. That's kind of what I've asked. That's what we all did, right? And if that's where our faith is, we need to go back and learn a heck of a lot more. And the reason there's no minimum passing score, that's such a human question, is that for Jesus to save us, there was no minimum passing score. Jesus died to save all, and he did it until the job was complete. And here's a funny way to, to think about it. Jesus never said, like, who's in the Garden of Gethsemane about to get arrested and all that stuff? He never said, okay, God, like, what's, what's the minimum I have to do to save Ryan? Like, it's a good guy. Like, I'm all for it. Just, what? But to think about it, if that was you, wouldn't that hurt if he was asking that? Because does he really, really want me saved, or does he just kind of want to, you know? It would hurt a little bit. Think about it like this. This is another way, because I always like to make it as personal as possible. If you're here with your spouse, look at your spouse. Just look at him for me real quick. Think back. If your spouse is not with you, that's fine tonight. Think back to the time when you got engaged. Wasn't it just awesome? You're in love. Just amazing, right? Now, imagine you're in that place mentally. And you come to me for premarital counseling, right? And when you come to me, your first session, you're, you're holding hands. Again, you're just, it's great. Everything's awesome. And I sit, right before we start, right before we start, I say, do you guys have any questions? And without missing a beat, your spouse goes, listen, what's the minimum I need to do to not get divorced? <laughs> like, here's the bar. Great. I'm glad I'm here with it. What's like, how do I just not get divorced? Look at your spouse. How would that make you feel? It'd be terrible, right? Terrible. Because are they genuinely interested in you and having a wonderful marriage? No. No. And it's the same thing with Christianity. If we're like, yeah, but how much is, how many times can I hit my brother, like, or elbow, not even this, and still be, you know, that's not, Christianity is not like that. So to ask a question like that is not coming from the right place. And it's a lot like the rich people in a way who gave the money out of their wealth. If your hearts are not in it, if your hearts are not in the right spot, you're not going to give the right way. But on the other hand, if you're there, think again, you're in that premarital session, and, you're, and I asked that question, and your spouse gave of themselves and gave of their energies to your marriage the way the Israelites gave to God to help build the tabernacle or the way that widow gave it the offering box. They simply gave because they genuinely wanted to be in this relationship. They wanted it to thrive and to be awesome and to be just as in love when you got engaged as when you're 90 holding hands walking down the nursing home hallway, right? I know it sounds funny, but that's, that's how marriage should be. So this is how this idea relates to Christian, Christianity and giving. What Jesus wanted were for his followers first to understand that they were saved. They're loved unconditionally. We are blessed, right? He wanted us to come to believe that as well. And as we grow in our faith, we become part of the movement that then helps to reach out to others. Because Jesus said, go and make disciples. And then we give from our hearts joyfully to help other people know that blessing as well. And that's what it comes down to, right? So, it has nothing to do with percentages. The percentages is irrelevant. It comes back to faith. 
Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Do you believe God is working your life? Is God working in this church? And do you feel you can support that with your time, your talents, and your offerings? And if you, the answer is yes, then you just, then just give. God will tell you. Sometimes it'll be more. Sometimes it'll be less. But as Paul described it, it should always be with a cheerful heart and with gratefulness for what God's done for you. And when you do that, there will always be enough. And for the record, I always like to say this myself, Pastor Craig, Pastor Joey, we have no idea what anybody gives. There's a complete wall there. We're not involved in that process. We will never know if somebody gives a thousand, ten thousand, or two pennies. And the reason we do that is our job is to preach the gospel, to help you in your faith, that we all grow together. The other reason is we never want to be in a situation like what happened to that poor woman, where someone who we think gives more gets more adulation in time versus someone who gives two pennies. Because that is not that is not biblical. We are here no matter what. And we are here to spread the gospel. That's what we are called to do. What you give is between you and God. All right? And that's that. So let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, tonight we learned about the Israelites who gave abundantly to the tabernacle, but also how much they were into what you were doing for them and their people. Father, we also learned what Jesus wants to know about offering as well. And tonight, we thank you for all your gifts, for all the blessings to each one of us, to our church. We thank you for your forgiveness, for your love, and your patience. And most of all, we thank you for sending your son to save us, because it is of him that we have hope and that we have joy. Father, we ask you to put on our hearts how each one of us could give back to you of our time, our talents, and our treasure. We believe in your son, and it is our hope that many, many people will come to know him and believe in him through us stepping out as, in, as individuals and as a church. Father, we thank you for everything you've done for us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.